Oh, good afternoon. Um, so I know we actually did this lesson last week in Japanese, and normally, whenever we have our English worship, I do the same lesson uh, that we did in Japanese in the morning for English in the afternoon. But I felt like this lesson is very important, and so I wanted to do it in English. Uh, because I, I think, you know, since I, we're not doing English worship every week, I kind of have to choose which ones I think are uh, maybe the, the central elements of what I'm talking about. And I think this is one of them. And so I wanted to do this one again. So hopefully hearing it in English uh, will maybe help, help you kind of understand it a little bit more easily than what it was in Japanese. Uh, so... When we went through one of the earlier lessons in James, we saw that this, this phrase, the word of truth and the implanted word, that word is referring primarily to the gospel. Um, it, it does, of course, refer to, in a sense, when he talks about the law, we, we hear the concept of the law of Moses, but it's not just the law of Moses, it's the law as interpreted by Jesus. Um, it's the law in the context of what uh, one commentator, Scott McKnight, calls the Jesus Creed. And so really we're talking about loving you know, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, and how that sort of interprets uh, everything, and how Jesus interprets everything, and so on and so forth. But when we think about this idea of the word of truth and the implanted word, again, we're thinking especially just about the gospel uh, it's the good news that Jesus preached. It's the good news that his apostles preached. It's the good news that God's kingdom has begun and that Jesus is king. It's the good news that God has given us his spirit to dwell in us. It's the good news, the good news that uh, Jesus Christ is God's son and that he died for our sins and rose on the third day. And it's the good news that we are saved by grace through faith. And so this is that word of truth. This is the, the word that was implanted by those who preached which made God's people new and which has saved their souls. But James follows us up immediately with saying, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So the gospel has made us new, right? Not by our works, but by God's grace in Christ through faith. And yet James says we have to be doers of this word, doers of the gospel, so this is really the big question for us today. What does that mean? If the word of truth by which we have been made a new creation is the gospel, then how do we do that? How do we do the gospel? What does James mean about a man looking in a mirror and forgetting his own face? And what is this law, law of liberty? Isn't law and liberty kind of opposites? And what does all of that have to do with verses 26 and 27, not to mention the rest of the letter? So I want to think about these questions today by looking at three things that the gospel does. And when we understand these, I think we will understand what it means to do the gospel. When we understand what the gospel does, we will understand how to do the gospel. Okay? So the three things we're going to talk about today, the gospel reveals, the gospel frees, and the gospel demands. The gospel reveals, the gospel frees, the gospel demands. So first, the gospel reveals. Now, we actually talked some about this in a previous lesson, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But it is important to cover this, this point again. 
James compares someone who hears the word but doesn't do it to a man who looks at his own face in a mirror and then once he's no longer looking in the mirror, immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, we'll get back to what James means with this analogy a little bit later, but before we get to that, we first need to understand that the gospel, the word of truth, is for us a mirror. The gospel reveals to us who we are. It shows us what we really look like. So you see, the gospel tells us about God. It shows us God's love. It shows us that he cares so much about us that he's willing to give his only son to die for us. And yet by doing so, the gospel also shows us who we are. By showing us God's glory, the gospel shows us our sin. By showing us that God sent his only son for our sin, it simultaneously shows us that we needed God's only son to die for our sin. And so the gospel is a mirror. It reveals who we really are. Not who we want to be, not how we want to think about ourselves, but who we really are in our hearts. And this is part of why the gospel is so hard for so many to accept, right? Because the gospel reveals something that we don't want to see. Now, I'm going to tell you a kind of embarrassing, maybe better way of saying it is pathetic story. <laughs> kind of pathetic. Uh, but uh, it's true. So when I was in high school, I had very little self-esteem. I felt very, very bad about how I looked. I had, at certain times, I had a lot of acne and it made me feel like I was just hideous. I felt like I was just a you know horrible looking person. And uh, I felt so badly about how I looked that I actually did not look in the mirror for several years. For several years, I did not look in the mirror. And I'm, I'm not joking. Sometimes, obviously, I had to look in the mirror, kind of. But I would actually squint my eyes, basically, so that I couldn't really see my face because of how much anxiety it gave me about how I looked. Now, to be honest, I don't really know how bad my face actually was. It may not have been that bad, but that's how I felt. And, you know, honestly, regardless of how it was, it was silly and it was vain. And I regret that about being so obsessed by it. Thankfully, I got over that in college, but it really made life unpleasant for a while. It made life difficult for a while. You can imagine if you can never look in a mirror, you know, that's not going to be very easy in a lot of ways. But you see, this is the same reason why the gospel is hard for us. Because it's that mirror that shows us what we don't want to see. It's the mirror that shows us our wrinkles, our acne, our shape, and so on. It's the scale that we step on that tells us how much we actually weigh. It's the doctor's visit that says, you need to eat better. Or the dentist who says, you need to floss, right? And so our natural tendency is to do what? Avoid it, right? I don't want to look in that mirror. I don't want to get on that scale. I don't want to talk to that doctor. But as I said last time, we need it. We need the gospel because the only hope for growth, the only hope for change, the only hope for spiritual fruit, for healing, is to see ourselves as we really are. The only way to experience all the blessings that God wants to give us, those good and perfect gifts that James talked about just a few verses earlier, the only way you can experience that is if you see yourself as you really are in the light of the gospel, which is God's word of truth. That's the only way you will see yourself as you really are. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that although it does reveal to us who we are, it also frees us. The gospel does reveal our heart. It shows us our sins. It unmistakably illuminates our failures. And yet it is the only way that we can find freedom. Do you see what James calls this word? He calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, why is that? How how does a law bring liberty? I think most of us, 
maybe see law as kind of the opposite of liberty, right? If you have a law, then you can't be free. So, for example, if I'm on the highway and there's a law that says I have to go a certain speed and I can't go beyond that speed, that law necessarily limits my freedom. Or the law says I have to pay taxes. Those taxes necessarily limit my freedom in how I can spend my money. So these seem sort of antithetical to each other, right? What does James mean by the law of liberty? Well, it's important to remember that James is a Jew in the first century, right? James is not a 21st century modern person. He's a Jew in the first century, and writing as early as he is, his audience would also be almost entirely Jewish. So when he talks about the law, anyone reading that letter would have immediately understood that he was referring to the law of Moses. But James doesn't just say the law, but rather the law of liberty, which means there's some kind of qualification. It can't purely be the law of Moses. And as we said earlier, what James means here is the law as it had been both totally fulfilled and perfectly explained in Jesus, right? That is the law of liberty. It's not just the law of Moses, but it's the law explained and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus took this law that enslaved us, this law that that bound us, that condemned us, and transformed it into a law that brings liberty. And there's two ways that he did this. Now, first of all, it's kind of the obvious way, but a very important way. Jesus paid the penalty for the law of the law in our place. So the law of Moses without Jesus, all it would do is condemn people. And so it could not really be a law of liberty, right? It was good. Yes, it was good. The law was good because the law told us what was right, but it was not yet perfected. And so the law told people to behave in certain ways, to avoid certain things. But as James says later on, anyone who breaks the law in any point is guilty of the whole. So the law of Moses condemned people to death and separation from God. The law itself is good, but by giving us the law, it turns us into lawbreakers. And so it kind of becomes a curse to us in that sense, right? It binds us, it condemns us. But Jesus, by his death and resurrection, completely paid the price that we owe. Jesus took the penalty that we owe because of the law and in its place gave us the gift of his perfect righteousness. In other words, because of Jesus, it's as if we have completely obeyed God's law. And so the law that once condemned us now bestows on us a blessing. In Jesus, we're found not only to not be guilty, but in fact to be perfectly righteous. And so we can inherit God's kingdom. We can enter into eternal resurrected life. Because as Paul also says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. God sees us as he sees Christ. And so he has freed us. And so now we have that, that freedom from death and separation from God. And instead, now we find life in communion with God. And so in Jesus, and in Jesus only, the law truly is a law of liberty, a law that produces freedom. But that's not really the entire picture. In fact, I would tell you that's not really the main point that James is trying to make. It's foundational, but there's something else James is getting at here. So part of the problem with the law of Moses is that while it told people what to do, it didn't enable them to do it, right? It said, do this, but it didn't actually enable anybody to do that. The law gave commands, but as we said, all those commands did in the end was condemn us because we're unable to obey them perfectly. So without Jesus, the law was just threatening. It was a burden. It told us what actions to take without giving us the power to take them. So the law was kind of this this frustrating cage in which we found ourselves. But part of Jesus fulfilling the law involved changing our hearts themselves 
and putting his spirit in us, enabling us to actually live God's law out. Specifically, the highest law, that that law that says to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now his spirit is in us and enables us to have that kind of love. And when you couple that with the freedom from judgment and the righteousness given to us in Jesus, this fulfillment turns the law from a burden to a joy. Yeah, I mean, it's still a law. Don't misunderstand. It is still a law. It is an obligation, a command, a requirement. But rather than being a requirement we do out of fear or mere duty, we now carry it out in joy. That's the distinction here. If someone commanded me, for example, Leslie, kiss your wife, right? And I'd be like, oh, man, I have to kiss Sarah. No, it's a joy. It's not a burden. I'm happy to do it. Now, you know, I may or may not be very good at it. That's going to be a different question. But I'm going to pursue obedience to that command with joy in my heart. And that's what what Jesus has done to the law. He has turned it from a law of sin and death to a law of liberty, a law of that's a burden to a law that's a joy. Because I no longer have to fear every single mistake and because I know that God is enabling me to obey, even changing my heart itself. And because I know that God will bring joy and blessing to me through his law, therefore I can pursue that law not as one bound, but as one free. The poet William Cowper once wrote a poem precisely about these words. And the last line of that poem is very powerful, and it goes like this. He wrote, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, and hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. You see, the gospel, the news of what Jesus has done, the good news that Jesus has fulfilled the law, removed the power of sin and death, given us his very own righteousness, that gospel truly sets us free. It sets me free from the fear of judgment before God, knowing I'm made righteous in Jesus. It sets me free from the fear of death itself, knowing that even if I die, yet will I live. It sets me free from the burden of God's commandments, turning them not into a change, but a sail that drives me forward and brings me joy. It reveals to me who I am and it sets me free to be who God actually made me to be. So we've seen two things about the gospel. This word of truth that James James says. The gospel reveals who we are and the gospel frees us to be who God wants us to be. But that's not where the story stops. And I think too many people, too often, we kind of want to stop there. But that's not where the story stops. Because the gospel also requires a response. The gospel reveals, the gospel frees, yes, but the gospel also demands. It demands something of us. Look at what James says in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think a lot of people like to hear the gospel message. Perhaps they love the gospel because it says kind of out loud what they see. They, they see the world is broken. They see the sin in the world. And, and they see all that and they say, yes, the gospel is saying exactly what I see. It explains it. And so they like that. Maybe they even recognize their own sinfulness. And the gospel's explanation of sin kind of helps them maybe understand themselves better. And of course, I don't know anyone who doesn't love to hear how much God loves us and that he forgives us of our sins and offers us eternal life. Those things are all wonderful. But James says that we need to be not only hearers, but doers. What does that mean? How how do we become a doer of the gospel? And the answer to that is found in verses 23 through 25. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
So the gospel, as we said, is a mirror. It shows us who we are, or who we, at least we have been, the sin in our hearts. But that same gospel also shows us what God has done to us and in us through Jesus, saving us and transforming us. The gospel shows us that we're guilty. It shows us that we're, we're sinful, we're dirty and blemished before God. But then the gospel shows us what God has declared of us in Jesus Christ, that we are washed, cleansed, made new. And if I have experienced that, if I have experienced the newness of the gospel, the power of God transforming the old me into something wonderfully new, then obedience to Jesus will be as natural as remembering my own face when I look in the mirror. And on the flip side, to live a life of disobedience, to hear but not to do, is as foolish and absurd as seeing my face in a mirror and immediately forgetting what I look like. Now there's this idea in many circles today that once you have become a Christian, you're saved. And so basically, it's okay to be spiritually and morally lazy, not worrying too much about seeing your life transformed. It's okay You know, it's going to take time, so I can just kick my feet up and let it take however much time it does. But if you have looked into the gospel, if you have seen all of your sin and all of your moral failures in the light of God's perfect goodness, and then seen what God has done in Jesus to forgive you and to make you new, then that idea will be completely absurd. And the order here is very important, right? The order is important. It's not that I live in obedience and then I get to experience the power of the gospel, Rather, my heart is transformed by the gospel, so then I live in obedience. I'm not a doer of the word, so God will save me. I'm a doer of the word because God has saved me. But that still means that if I'm not doing the word, something important is missing. So each of us, we have to analyze our lives and we have to ask ourselves whether we're actually living in accordance with what we have seen and heard and claimed to believe. And for sometimes this is going to be very, very difficult. Jesus says clearly that he calls on people to take up their cross and follow him. That means you take up the instrument of your death, the thing that will kill you, and you follow him. Jesus expects his followers to be willing to sacrifice to follow him. But if you've seen all that God has done for you, if you truly find him beautiful and know the joy of what he has done for you and in you, then you will love what he loves and you will hate what he hates and that will change your life in concrete ways. It's not just an abstraction. It's a reality that you live out, right? It may cause you to go when you want to stay. You may say, I don't want to be here. And God says, go and you have to go. Or on the flip side, it may say, I want to go. And God says, no, you need to stay and you stay. It may cause you to sell when you want to keep or give when you want to buy. It's going to affect your time. It's going to affect your job. It's going to affect your relationships. It's going to affect everything that you do. I mean, literally every part of your life, it's going to affect. It's going to affect the way that you treat other people, the way you talk to other people. It's going to be, it's going to affect the way you think about your relationships with those you love, with those you maybe don't love so much or struggle to love. It's going to change your relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with your wife or your husband. It's going to change the way that you use the internet. It's going to change the way that you drive. It's going to change literally everything about your life. It's not just theoretical. That's my point. This isn't just theory. It's practical. The gospel really needs to change our lives and our actions in meaningful ways. But this is why verse 25 is so important. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. The key to being a doer of the word 
I think is found in, and again, I talked about Scott McKnight before, but he uses a great phrase here. He says, persevering into moral formation. Persevering into moral formation. The distinction between a hearer and a doer is not just, I think, that one tries harder than the other. The distinction is that one perseveres into spiritual growth while the other stagnates and live a life unimpacted by the gospel that they claim to believe. Spiritual growth does not simply mean feeling more like you love God, right? God is not concerned necessarily with whether I feel something or not. He is more concerned about what I'm actually doing with my life. How am I using my body, right? Am I actually increasing in holiness, becoming more and more like him? That's why that point is important. Moral formation, spiritual formation is moral formation. It's not abstract, it's concrete. It changes your life in real ways. It changes your moral decisions. And this is the point of verses 26 and 27. What does it mean to really live out the gospel? What does it mean to live as a transformed person? It means not just feeling like I love God, but specific things like controlling my speech, comforting the hurting, and not being defiled by the sin and the evil of the world. If my heart has really been impacted by the gospel, the result will be a heart filled more with peace and gentleness, such that my words are not constantly bitter or filled with anger and lies, but rather filled with truth and seasoned by grace. If my heart has really been impacted by the gospel, then I will see Jesus, God himself, coming in the flesh, identifying with the poor and the suffering, and I will find in me the desire to do the same. If my heart has really been impacted by the gospel, then I will remember the sin which once marred my heart, which God has cleansed in Jesus, and I will pursue a life marked not by worldliness, but by holiness, not by the thinking of the world, but by the thinking of God. I will have an unwavering commitment to putting, uh, putting off the evil of the world and putting on the fruits of the Spirit and an unwavering commitment to loving what God loves and hating what God hates. I think that's a really difficult question. Do I love what God loves and hates what, hate what God hates? Do I really have a heart that says, God loves that and I love it too, and God hates that and I hate that too? Do I really hate sin? I'm not talking about sinners. I'm not talking about people. I'm, the sin itself, the idea of, of, of breaking what God wants for me to do. Do I hate that? I think a lot of us, if we're honest, struggle with that. Have I really have a, do I really have an unwavering commitment to being unstained by the world? Think about that word, unstained. Unstained, unimpacted. A life that is completely not touched by sin and worldliness. Is that something I'm committed to seeing in my life? Now, you might say, well, I don't know if that's really possible. The point isn't necessarily whether I'm going to be perfect in this life, but the point is, is that something I'm committed to? Am I committed to pursuing perfection? Or again, have I said, you know what? Where I am is good enough. Where I am, that's fine. It's fine for me to stagnate here. Again, it's not that I'm going to do everything perfectly. Yeah, I'm going to, of course, I'm going to continue to struggle in the flesh with all of these things, but I will persevere. I will continue to seek these things with all of my heart, fully committed to seeing them increasing in me, not just in my heart, not just as an abstraction, but in my actions as a real practical way of living. That's what the gospel calls. The gospel calls for this kind of a response. The gospel saves us, yes, but the gospel doesn't just leave us to be where we were when we were saved. The gospel says it's time to grow. It's time to look more like Jesus. It's time to put off those things 
that pull you towards the world and put on the things that pull you to Jesus. So this is the questions James is challenging us to ask ourselves. Am I a doer of the word or am I just a hearer? Do I like to hear the gospel, but I don't really want to do it? The question is not whether or not I've been perfected. Of course, I'm not perfected yet. But am I persevering into moral formation? Am I allowing the gospel to really change me from the inside? Or am I content with just kind of a superficial transformation? Now, if you find that question disturbing, maybe you feel troubled by it. Maybe you think, hmm, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I see a lot of ways where that's not me. Well, I would encourage you, look back into that mirror. Remember who you once were. Remember what God has done to you and in you through Jesus. Look back into that perfect law of liberty by which God has set you free from sin and death and made you into a new human, a new person in Christ. I mean, look long into it. Think about it. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Let your heart sit on it and let it change you. But also, as you do that, remember that abundant grace God has poured out to you in Jesus through this same word. And let that give you the power to persevere. Okay, maybe this week you've, you've struggled. You've not controlled your words. You've neglected those in need. You've found the stains of the world all over your life. Maybe you've embraced some of those staining influences. You've said, I want some of that. And you know it. Nothing you have done, nothing you have failed to do, is a match for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not even close. So, you can get back up and move forward. You can persevere. Don't give up. That's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel gives you the power to get up and keep moving. Yeah, the gospel is going to condemn some of your actions sometimes. The gospel is going to tell you that was sin. That was evil. That was wrong. That was disobedient. That was rebellious. Yes, it's going to. But that same gospel that shows you that also gives you the grace you need to get back up and say, I'm going to keep moving forward. It gives you the power to persevere, the freedom to persevere. That's the beauty of the gospel. So don't give up. Keep moving. And if you will keep looking and gazing into that word, you will find your life more and more changed into the image of Jesus, not just a hearer, but a doer of the word of truth. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we love to hear the good news. We love to hear your gospel. We love to hear what Jesus has done for us. We love to hear that you love us so much that you would give your only son to die for us. We love to hear that you've prepared a place for us. We love to hear about eternal life. We love to hear forgiveness of sins. We love to hear all of these things that the gospel tells us, Father. But Father, we struggle to be doers of your word. We find so many influences in our life that we want to embrace that are not your gospel and are not in line with your gospel. And Father, we just pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us to see the beauty that you have, your your beauty, your, your wonder, your splendor, Father, so that we would be actually pulled into living lives of obedience to you. Father, help us to, to be transformed by the gospel, not to be hearers, but to be doers of your word. Father, we need your help in this. We need you at work in us. 
because there is a battle going on within us, Father, and I think all of us experience that. And we just pray that you would be on our side, fighting those battles for us, helping us, Father, so that we can grow more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Father, help us to put off the ways of the world and the sins that so easily uh, ensnare us, Father, and instead to put on the fruits of the Spirit, to grow in love and joy and peace and kindness and all of these things, Father. Help us to, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Help us to grow in holiness, Father. Help us to grow, uh, it, it, to persevere into moral formation. Help us to be morally formed, Father, not just in an abstract way, but in a practical way, Father. Help us to see the sins of the world and to say, I don't want any part in that. Help us to be bold, Father, because, Lord, it's so hard sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's scary. We're afraid people will look at us as a prude, as somebody who's uh, legalistic even, perhaps. Father, help us not to worry about what the world says, but to worry about what you say. Help us, Father, to trust your word, to trust you, and to be obedient servants of you and of your son, Jesus. Father, thank you for the gospel that allows us the grace to keep getting up and moving forward even when we fall. Thank you for the righteousness that you have given us in Jesus. That is our only hope, and we just are so grateful for it, Lord. We pray that you would help us to walk in that victorious power that you've given us in Jesus through the rest of this week. And we pray this in his name. Amen.